Good morning, everyone. It is great to be with you. Uh, that song actually is an original song by our community music team, which is quite cool. Uh, I would encourage you to check it out on Spotify. It's based off the words of this little book in the Old Testament called Habakkuk. Habakkuk, anyone have a strong feeling how you want to say it? Uh, I'll be saying Habakkuk. That's not because it's right. It's just because it's who I am and it's what I've got. Uh, my brain will trip up if I try to say it any other way at this point. Um, so we wanted to take you into this book. We wanted to open up this big, gaping question, which at some point you will wrestle with, at some point you have wrestled with, the question, why does God seem unfair? In order to get into this question, I wanted to take you back in history to a fun little book that you may have stumbled across, maybe in high school literature. Uh, it's by the French philosopher Voltaire, and the book is called Candid. Candid. Uh, anybody have a chance to read this book? It was written in the 1750s, so back about 300 years ago. Think pre-American Revolution. This is old, right? But in the 1750s, um, this French philosopher Voltaire was horrified at this idea going around by another German philosopher. So this German's name was Gottfried Leibniz. Leibniz. And Leibniz was famous for inventing calculus. This was a very intelligent guy. And as an inventor of calculus, he was a mathematician. He was into logic. And Leibniz was also a Christian and decided that as he thought logically about the world, he proposed this theory that if God is good and God created the world, then surely God had to have created the best possible world for the most amount of people. So this idea was called philosophical optimism. And Leibniz became quite influential for this phrase that would be repeated across Europe during this time, where he said, we are living in the best world God could have created for the most possible people. All will be well because we are living in the best possible world. Now, as you pause and just think about that for just a second, Leibniz sounds like a mathematician. He's got some logic behind him. But Voltaire was not having it. Voltaire, the French philosopher, did not like Leibniz's optimism. And so in this book, Candid, Voltaire writes the story of a man named Candid. You'll see what Voltaire's doing here. It's a lot of satire. There's a lot of French ooh-la-la going on in this book. Uh, as Voltaire writes his story, Candid goes out into the world hopeful. He says, God is good. God loves me. Things are going to work out. And as Voltaire tells Candid's story, 
Everything that can go wrong does go wrong for Candid. So Candid finds himself thrown into prison, and he's like, surely God's going to save me. And he seems to get out of prison, only to find himself drafted into the army. And he's in the army, and he's like, this is all going to be okay. We're going to win. And then his army loses, and he gets put back into prison. This is just this miserable, terrible, no good, very bad day that Candid has over and over and over again, right? And as Candid's going through this, Voltaire gets to the very end of the story, and Candid, uh, with this group that have been journeying with him, look for a wise man that they think is going to give them the answer to why his life has gone so terribly wrong. And as they find this wise man, the wise man is working in a garden, so he has a plot of land, and this wise man essentially says to them, listen, all you can do is put your head down and work the garden that you've been given. This is the famous philosophy that Voltaire comes up with. And I have to say for just a moment, I think Voltaire has more wisdom than Leibniz, if you're tracking with all these horrible European names uh, that you have to keep in your mind. I think Voltaire has something going for him that Leibniz doesn't. I think Voltaire does help us see, as you live in the city, that on some level, it is helpful to know as heavy as these questions can become, I mean, like, why and where and how and what is God up to and what's going on? I personally have found some comfort from this vision from Voltaire that, that Candid essentially says, well, I think I should work the land that's in front of me. I, I think as big and important and as heavy as these questions are, maybe I should just, to just get to work, just put my head down, just do the task that is in front of me. However... I will say, as much as Candid can help us, I think both Leibniz and Voltaire get wrong one central question that the Bible is going to insist we have to ask together when it comes to suffering. And the question is this, what is God's relationship to us in suffering? What is God's relationship to us in suffering? Now, Leibniz, if you're tracking, in his optimism, says, God doesn't really care about suffering. God has given you the best possible world you can have. Look, God is good. God's goodness means this must be good too. So whatever you're struggling with, just get over it because God has created the best possible world for you. Voltaire, on the other hand though, essentially cuts God out of the equation. He minimizes God so that he can maximize the experience of suffering. And as Voltaire is wrestling with this, Voltaire essentially says, God doesn't care enough to get involved in your suffering. God wants you to just get on with the tasks that are in front of you. Stop asking God what he thinks about your suffering and just get back to work. Now, if this is resonating with you at all, I have a sense as I was thinking about this teaching, that there are two kinds of people when it comes to suffering in the room this morning, okay? So you're one of two kinds of people. You first might be somebody who I would affectionately label as a sprinter from suffering. What do I mean by that? Uh, you're the kind of person that, to be honest, suffering's so hard and sad, and you don't like sad things. You want happy things. And so maybe you are an Enneagram 7. You can nudge the person next to you if you know Enneagram and you know they're a 7. Maybe you are a lighthearted and bubbly and optimistic person. I've met many of these people in my life. And there's, there's a real gift to being a sprinter from suffering, right? You're just one of those people that are like, I would rather not get bogged down. I have a family member, uh, one of my in-laws, who is just here again, and she's like, 
don't bring up sad things, you know? Like, let's talk about happy things. I just want life to be happy. Let's keep going. Let's be happy. And so if that's you this morning, you're a sprinter from, from suffering, uh, for the next three weeks, I, I, I have good news. It's only three weeks that we're going to talk about suffering, okay? So it's only three weeks that we're going to ask you to slow down. And I know this won't be fun for you to sit in suffering, uh, but if you are a sprinter, my encouragement to you pastorally, or maybe even my concern for you, is that at some point, you will not be able to outrun suffering in your own life. And so sometimes I've seen sprinters have the moment where suffering catches up with them, and if they haven't asked this question, where is God in relationship to my suffering? Then they suddenly look around, and the suffering is so overwhelming that God is almost nowhere to be found. But if that's one kind of person in the room this morning, a sprinter, the other people, I would suggest, are those of us who get swallowed by suffering. Do I have an amen from anyone in the room? Uh, this is me. I would categorize myself as a swallower, uh, somebody who gets completely overwhelmed by suffering. Uh, my wife likes to point out to me, Jenna, that sometimes uh, she'll come into the room and I'm like listening to Bon Iver. Anybody else just like listening to Bon Iver? And she's like, why are you doing this? Like, and I'm like, I just, I just needed to feel sad, I think. Like, I'm just, I just want to feel something. Um, to be swallowed by suffering is to find yourself overwhelmed and marked by experiences in life that, that truly are overwhelming. Like there are those within our community, there are those that I'm sure you know, where anything from horrific events that have happened, I mean, this could be a sexual abuse that took place in your life, this could be family dysfunction or brokenness where some sort of relationships have totally fallen apart. This could just be the unexpected loss like that moment when you were going along in life and for the first time someone you knew that you care about died and it didn't make any sense at all. Uh, there tends to be sort of this string of events. And if you're honest, when you ever slow down, you find suffering start to sort of creep up on you. Like it starts to become this large, overwhelming sort of cloud that settles in and maybe you find yourself, if you're honest, struggling with depression sometimes. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe uh, when you sit alone, I remember a friend who said, you know, I think I am sad most of the time. Like when I slow down, there is just a sadness that sort of lingers with me. Maybe that is you. If that is you, um, as someone who often can be swallowed by suffering, I think the church can miss you because there can be this temptation to either follow Lebanus say, you know, God is good. God has done the best he can. I mean, I know that hard thing happened to you, but surely, like, God is going to be good. Amen, yes, and amen. Let's worship, let's sing, let's praise. Uh, or even sometimes the church can do a bit of the Voltaire that says, you know, that's just so hard. Maybe, maybe we'll just let you get back to work and sort of leave God out of this for the time being. If that's you, I wanted to encourage you by taking you to a book that takes very seriously the complexity of suffering and that does ask this very important question, what is God's relationship to it? So with that preface, would you turn with me to the book of Habakkuk? It's going to be up here on the screen. You can pull out your phone. We're going to be working through chapter one this morning. And as we go into Habakkuk, here's the setup for you. Habakkuk is written uh, in the 600 B.C.s 
right in a transition of power in the kingdom of Judah. So previously, Judah had this amazing king named Josiah that you've maybe heard about. And Josiah had this incredible renewal. He brought the law back into the land. He started to celebrate Passover again. The people started worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel. And everyone seemed really excited that Josiah's reign was going to maybe kickstart this brand new Davidic kingdom that some of the prophets had been telling would come. But unfortunately, Josiah unexpectedly dies in his 40s. I mean, he's in the prime of life, doesn't make any sense. He is out, and suddenly he is gone. And in Josiah's place, his younger son, Manasseh, is going to rise to the throne. And Manasseh is a hugely successful king in terms of economy, politics, and war, but is hugely unsuccessful when it comes to stewarding the spiritual life and vitality of the people of Judah. And so Manasseh, in order to, to sort of get ahead politically, is going to start compromising with all the nations around Judah. And in his compromising, he's going to bring all of these worshiping practices into the community. And the most horrific one, I've actually talked about this before, uh, is that Manasseh started to practice in Jerusalem child sacrifices where you take one of your children and you would offer them to a foreign god. And Manasseh himself would take one of the heirs of David and would kill him outside of Jerusalem as a child. Uh, so this is sort of like the horror and the, the turn within one generation. I mean, from Josiah, who's such a good king, to Manasseh, who's now such a horrible king, into this gap a bunch of prophets start to speak. So this is a pretty pivotal time for Judah. Uh, interestingly, Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah is written right before the book of Habakkuk. So think about Jeremiah and everything that's going on with him. Uh, but Habakkuk steps into the scene. And at first, we're going to see in this opening passage that Habakkuk is going to cry out on behalf of this sort of bewildering shift that has happened to the people. So let's go ahead and look at this. This is Habakkuk 1, 2 to 4. Habakkuk says this. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted." As you hear this and see this, I think there's plenty here, plenty here, just even on a surface level that we can connect to today, right? If you, if you were to step back and to look at the world around you, I know what can be so confusing for those of us who are following Jesus, who have faith in God, is that we look at the world around us and we say, why is so much going wrong? Like, God, how have you allowed so much injustice to creep in. Like if all these horrible things were happening in Judah back then, you can see Habakkuk going like, God, where are you? What is happening? Like it was so good and now it's so bad. I think of the many moments that all of us are kind of experiencing rolling around, like these two wars that just broke out globally. The first one in Ukraine and now one that's taking place between Israel and Gaza. You just stare at it like wherever you are in the politics and all of the swirls and the punditry and even uh, the elections that are coming up. You have to just look at them and go, wow, like why? Why is injustice prevailing? Why is the law paralyzed? Why does it seem like the wicked are hemming in the righteous or far, far closer to home? I think of all that takes place in Chicago, right? Especially for those 
uh, and there are many in this community who are actively advocating for the politics of the city. And you just see major corruption across Chicago. You see funding pulled unexpectedly from places that need it. You see funding that's supposed to go towards helping communities, helping social services, going into our schools, be spent elsewhere for almost no reason. You hear people trying to put forth solutions, and yet it ends up getting entrenched in different parties and politics. I mean, you just hold this overwhelming burden of what's going on around us, and you say, how, God, could you allow it to have gotten this bad? Where are you, God? How long? How long? Yet here's where Habakkuk gets interesting. Are you ready for a twist? Okay, because you didn't know this was coming if you haven't read Habakkuk, and this is, this is juicy. I'm, I just want to give you, like, this is, this is going to stir you up a little bit. Uh, so this is the very next passage in Habakkuk 1, 5 to 7. And it, just so you can track, I mean, this is a little hard. This book was written a long time ago. Uh, there's, uh, it's, there's some actual Hebrew poetry that's moving now into what the scholars call an oracle. Uh, but here, in these two verses, most scholars think that Habakkuk is referencing a prophecy that had been spoken in Judah. So he, he starts with his complaint of like, things are really bad in Judah. And then Habakkuk turns to this prophecy that has been made and he's going to say, what is going on with this prophecy? Now, if I could give you just one Bible nerd fact. So if you're not into the, wanting to know much about the Bible, you can tune this out. Uh, I discovered this last week as I was digging into this that one recent scholar uh, has suggested, he thinks it's very probable Habakkuk was a disciple of the prophet Jeremiah, which means that these three verses could have been words Jeremiah spoke that now Habakkuk is referencing and saying, hey, look, I heard from my teacher, your prophet Jeremiah, these words. And so now, God, I want to know what you are doing and what you have to say to this. That was the end. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, we can talk about it after those. I know the three or four of you who will come up to me. I'm so excited to talk about that after this teaching is done. Okay, here's what, here's what he says in Habakkuk, verses five to seven. Look at the nations and watch. These are the words from God. This is an oracle or a prophecy from God. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who will sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Okay, so at this point, if you're living in Judah, you're like, hey, Habakkuk, can you go like talk to God? You're one of the prophets. Like, could you go sort this out? Like maybe give him one of those cries, you know, God might listen to you. How long, O oh Lord? Why is there injustice sweeping through the land? See what God says. And Habakkuk goes and he takes this prophecy and he looks at God and says, in response to injustice, you are going to raise up a foreign people, the Babylonians, who we know are not going to treat us well if they come and invade our land, but instead are going to just like wipe us out. They're going to seize dwellings. They're going to cause fear and dread. They have no law that they're going to, to honor. Uh, they are really just interested in themselves. And just with a little bit of spoiler alert, uh, in case you haven't made your way through much of the Old Testament, this is what happens. Uh, the Babylonians are, in fact, going to come, and they will be the foreign invaders who end up destroying Jerusalem. They're going to lead the son of David, uh, the one who is on the throne, Jehoiakim, in chains, out into exile, and they're going to take 
a large majority of the Jewish people in Jerusalem, and they're going to deport them all the way to Babylon. It's one of the most horrific, terrible, uh, heart-wrenching experiences in the story of Israel. And most incredibly of all, we find in Habakkuk that God says, I am the one doing this. I am the one raising them up. Now, I do want to be really careful here, really careful, to, to note that the Bible is very clear that as much as we can get lost in the theological weeds here of like, okay, God is in charge of everything, and if God is in charge of everything, then every bad thing that happens is because God wants that bad thing to happen. Well, well no, the Bible says. That's not true. Clearly, for God to be good, the character of God, which we learn is good, does not intend for bad things to happen. God doesn't want these bad things to happen, but sometimes these bad things that happen can be, the Bible sometimes uses words like, released by God, that God can sort of allow, God creates space for. And I mean, to jump from trying to defend and explore the, the integrity of the Jewish people who are like, wow, God, how could you let such a horrific thing, the Babylonians are going to invade us, to, to step over here and defend God for just a moment. I, I mean, you heard from me setting this up, and you heard from Habakkuk in these opening verses, there is utter injustice taking place across Judah, right? It's not like Judah is blameless here. It's not like Manasseh was a good king. It's not like the, the people of Judah really have much of a leg to stand on. Like they are some blameless, pure, perfect people, and God is now just doing this cruel and sort of terrible thing by sending the Babylonians in. No, instead, somehow, somehow, if you want to wrestle with these kinds of big questions, there's this sense in which God who is holding all things, is going to either step back or create space or allow the sort of uh, mechanics of the world that are taking place, that are moving before him. He's going to allow it to happen so that something which does not seem good, something which feels like immense suffering, is going to take place so that a broader story can continue to unfold. If, of course, you step all the way back, as much as this moment when the Babylonians come is so horrific for Judah, feels like abandonment from God, what you see in Israel's story is God has not abandoned his people, even through the horrors of this invasion. In fact, it's going to be in Babylon that we hear the stories of Daniel you remember him, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's going to be in Babylon that eventually God is going to shift the Persians into power to displace the Babylonians. And as the Persians come in, Nehemiah and Ezra are going to be sent back, are going to return to Jerusalem. They're going to lead a remnant of the people. These people are going to rebuild the temple. They're going to prepare for the coming Messiah. And there in Jerusalem, as all of the politics of the world are churning, God is going to come in the flesh to enter into the very city that he allowed to be destroyed those hundreds of years ago so that there he could offer his own life in death on behalf of the people that he loves. I can't help but think of this line from the Lord of the Rings that was in the books and it was in the first movie as well. It's this line where Frodo is despairing at the heaviness of this ring that he's been given. In fact, I think J.R.R. Tolkien knew exactly what he was doing. This ring is sort of symbolizing all of the power, 
all of the suffering, all of the, the wars and the machinations of war and all of the terrible things that have been happening in and around the world. And it's all sort of there in Frodo's hands. And he looks at Gandalf, the wizard, and says, I wish this ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. Like, I, I, I wish this suffering had never taken place. And Gandalf is going to respond, so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All you have to decide is what to do with this time that has been given to you, right? This ring is in your hand. It's kind of impossible to sort out why exactly God allowed this ring to come to you. But what you have to decide is what you're going to do with this time that has been given to you. This does, I think, set up Habakkuk's second complaint. This is the end of our chapter in chapter one. Um, I'll warn you just in case you're hoping there's some clear resolution. We're in a three-week series. I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger. This is episode one. You got two more episodes to go. The story's not going to be done this week. But here's how Habakkuk ends chapter one. In response to this heaviness, in response to this news that suffering is coming, that there will be a ring that needs to be held, Habakkuk is going to say this, and this baffles me. It's amazing that the Bible contains these words from Habakkuk in response to that oracle. Here's what Habakkuk says. This is Habakkuk 1, 12 to 13. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Okay, here's what's so bold. Habakkuk, in response to suffering, believes that God wants him to speak a complaint in fact, uh, this tradition and this type of prayer is called a lament. This is uh, a tradition found across the scriptures. You can see laments in the Psalms. Uh, one of the most famous laments comes from Abraham, who in hearing that God intends to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, is going to say, wait, God, no. Can I ask if there are 100 righteous? Can I ask if there are 50? God, what if there are 10? begins negotiating with God. Uh, Moses is going to do the same thing. Standing there on Mount Sinai, we're told the Lord's anger burned at the idolatry that starts taking place with this golden calf. And Moses is going to say, wait, Lord, don't abandon us yet. God, you are the type of God who wants to know these people. God, do not give up on your people just yet. Here, Habakkuk dares to enter into this tradition and do the same thing. He's going to name what is true about God, and he's going to name what he believes is not lining up in this scenario. If we go back to the scripture, you'll notice at this top, the first verse in verse 12, Habakkuk calls on the character of God first and foremost. He says, are you not from everlasting? Lord, you will not know death. Surely, Lord, surely your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. There's this, there's this naming of who God is. There's this calling on God to be God. God, this, this does not feel true to who you are, God. God, you are so much more than this suffering which I am enduring. This does not make sense, God. Um, here in this first step of lament, um, I'm just giving you three steps 
in lament that we find here with Habakkuk. There's more going on in lament. Um, We're going to get to some other aspects even in other weeks. But for this opening salvo from Habakkuk, see three intriguing steps that you and I are invited into as well when it comes to our own suffering. First, Habakkuk is bold enough to name, to name the problem, to name the character of God and the aspects of this suffering that don't seem to line up with who he knows God to be. Um, I had an old mentor, a professor in my undergrad, who wrote a book called Naming Our Abuse. Um, And in this book, he talks about the horrific experiences that he and several other men had of being sexually abused as children. And for him specifically, it was by his father, who happened to be a missionary. You can imagine the kind of disorientation and confusion and just pain and grief and suffering that were taking place in his life as he attempted to sort of walk through all of this darkness. Um, And yet in this book, he has a brilliant insight that has shaped so much of how I approach all suffering, all of my pain. His insight is this. He says, that which is not named cannot be healed. That which is not named cannot be healed. The first step with most of our suffering is that it's so overwhelming. It's so big. It's so heavy that either sprinting from it or getting swallowed by it, it's like so hard to step out in community and to name it, to name what has gone wrong, to name where the wound has taken place in the suffering of your life. But notice here beautifully that Habakkuk believes God wants him to name his suffering. In fact, God is inviting Habakkuk to name the suffering that is going to take place for all of Habakkuk's people. This is incredible to me that the Bible not only sees, realizes something so psychologically complex, right, here in Lament, that that which is not named cannot be healed, but that the Bible invites us not only to name this with friends, but name it with God. Have you ever attempted something so bold? In your prayers? Have you ever attempted to name that which you see going wrong? And think about this for just a second. This could, of course, be naming experiences you personally have had. Have you named that bullying that took place as a child? Have you named those broken relationships that still bother you right now in your relationship to God? But this also could, of course, be naming when we get really frustrated by the injustices we see in the world all around us. I mean, I know it's so easy to get drawn into posting on social media. I know it's easy to get riled up in the politics. I feel like every time I scroll or see a news feed, it feels like algorithms are just trying to aggravate me. And yet, can you imagine if you were to see your task as the task of naming injustice before God, naming suffering before God? Once it has been named, I think the next step Habakkuk models is that it must be grieved So once it is named, it must be grieved. You can hear in the language of Habakkuk's complaint, going all the way back to that verse 2, where he says, How long, O Lord? Like there is emotion in Habakkuk's words. This is not a stoic prayer. This is not aloof and dispassionate. This is not buttoned up, written in a formal King James Version only, these and thous. This is raw, this is emotive, and this is Habakkuk bringing all of the feelings, the overwhelming feelings of grief into his relationship with God. Um, As I have been pondering this lament by Habakkuk, 
sitting with naming, entering into grief. Um, I, I've just been thinking about this last year. For me, uh, over this last year, many of you who've been walking close with, closely with me know something horrific happened in my family. There's this bomb that blew up. It sort of fragmented all these relationships that I had across my family. Um, I had the gift last January, so over a year ago now, to slow down and to get a therapist again that I could start sitting with. This therapist and I were talking week in and week out. And after I named the story, right, that was the first step to just name, like, this happened, feels like it's affecting everything. It feels like all the relationships are hurting. As the therapist sat with me, he said, you know, I think the task that we have in front of us is for you to grieve. I don't, I don't think there's anything else that we can really do. I, I think that's it. I think for the next several weeks, we're just going to be grieving. And for me, as somebody who has experienced this recently, um, I was drawn to reflect that I, I hate grieving. Like, grieving is so miserable. <laughs> it's some, and no wonder some of you are sprinters, you know? Like, grieving is this feeling that sort of rises up in your stomach. It sort of sits there. I find for me that it's normally this combination of, like, anger that I don't often let myself feel, but then it's also just like sadness that I don't like feeling either. And, and so much of it is like bubbling up inside and it's these words that come tumbling out. And sometimes these words are horrible and sometimes these words are just pitiable and sad. And I find myself saying these things and as I'm sitting before the therapist, I'd pour out these words and normally I'd be crying and it would be ugly tears. And then I would just find myself sitting in silence. What I found in this process, because uh, I had the gift of having a good therapist, is that he would sit with me, and in this moment, after I had grieved, the emotions had come out, he would pause, and then he would normally begin by saying, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And he did this so often, it almost became a joke that Jen and I would be like, yes, yeah, so did you have a thank you moment this week? Yes. Yes, there was yet another thank you moment. Yeah, I, I can't help but think, as you ponder lament, as you ponder your own suffering, you think about who God is. I think God wants to hear your lament because God wants to offer you the very same thank you that my therapist modeled. Like, I think my therapist was actually giving me a picture of God's heart for me in my grief. Is it possible? Is it possible that for so many of us who are stuck in suffering, like, there's, there's not much, there's not much we can do to change it. There's not much you can do to fix it. Like, most of these problems aren't going away. And so God, rather than this Lebanese optimism or this Voltaire, like God doesn't care. Is it possible that God wants to hear your lament so that God can look at you and say, thank you. Thank you for trusting me with your grief. Thank you for bringing the gift of your emotions, the complexity of your feelings. Thank you for bringing it into relationship with me. In fact, I'm almost 
daring enough to say as I was pondering this teaching that God created us not because God wants something out of us. He doesn't need any of your good deeds or your good works. God created us because he loves you and he wants to be in relationship with you. And the closest intimacy you could ever have with God is if you would dare to name and feel your grief before God so that God can look at you and say, I understand and I thank you for trusting me with your grief. I think this is the first invitation of Habakkuk to name, to grieve, and then maybe finally to just observe for next week that as much as uh, there is immense dignity in naming and grieving, um, if you can hold it, Habakkuk steps even further into this final task of contending that God says, I, I don't just want you to name. In fact, I, I long to know you in your grief, but actually come and contend with me. Come and bring the injustice of the complaint. Is it possible that there's something we can do together to address this suffering, this injustice, this situation that is grieving you? Is it possible for you? This is where I, I'll have to wrap this up. Is it possible that God wants you to step into this bold, courageous act of lament in which you look at the suffering within and the suffering without and you say, how might I name before God? How might I grieve? And also how might God actually long for me to contend, to step into the world and to even find a small pocket of my own existence where I can push forward righteousness, where I can bring God's presence to bear, where I could address wrongdoings that are taking place around me. This is in some ways the thrilling task of discipleship, is it not? That Jesus invites you into this dynamic process that lament didn't just have to take place back then. Lament should be happening now. We as a church could be a community that boldly believes God wants us not just to put our heads down and work, not just to dismiss suffering and say everything's gonna be okay, God didn't intend this to happen, but to boldly believe God wants to enter into suffering with us so that we can name, so that we can grieve and we can contend. Let me pray for you as we move to the table. God, over these next three weeks, I know there are some wounds of suffering within this community that I believe you want to address, that God, you want to enter into, that this place, this theater, this church could be a sanctuary where those who have suffered could be known by you, could experience healing from you, that even now at this table that we're about to eat at together, we can see in Jesus the one who wants to meet us in our suffering. Yet, Lord, I also pray for those here in this room who would prefer to just avoid suffering, who maybe are a bit of sprinters from suffering. I pray that these three weeks would be a chance not only for them to connect to you in their own suffering, Lord, but to have eyes to see how much you long to draw near to the brokenhearted, how much you long to comfort those who mourn, and that we, as your followers, we can be that kind, that kind of community, Lord, when people are hurting here in our midst, we can know them, we can name it with them, we can grieve with them, and we can contend on their behalf. We lift these prayers up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.